Okay, so I want to I want to revisit several things and try to kind of bring some things together and give some understanding to um, kind of summarize where we've been at and hopefully bring some understanding. But I want to revisit this idea of duality. So if you weren't here last week, um, I'll give you a brief rev- review. But a big part of our problem in the West, big part of our problem, is that we think in duality when duality does not exist in reality. I'll say that again. We think in terms of dualism or duality when duality or dualism does not exist in reality. So here's what I mean. Dualism divides things into two completely separate and opposing categories. So, for example, good and evil is a perfect example of duality. Because we divide those two into completely separate categories as opposing forces, completely in opposition with each other, that have nothing in common. Yes? We do the same thing with God and the devil. (laughs) We say God is all that we've now... God and the devil cannot exist in duality unless you first have categories for good and evil. Your categories for good and evil do not necessarily come from God. Your category for God comes from your sense of good and evil. And this is so transparent in the scriptures, it's, it's, it's amazing that we miss it. Because I remember back in the day when I was really into, you know, charismania, as some like to call it. Uh, and we would dance and shout and sing, God is good all the time. But we never dug out those passages that talked about genocide. Or, uh, like seriously, like nobody ever stood up and read, you know, where God commanded Moses to wipe out every thing except for the little girls and take them as your bounty. Because God said to do that. That's in your Bible. Uh, or the one that really gets me is God tells Israel, if you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. But it gives me pleasure to do either one. I'm happy either way. (laughs) I'm going to get my kicks either way. Either by punishing you or blessing you. But either way, I'm good. You see what I'm saying? So those types of behaviors from Yahweh don't fit our concepts of good. So psychologically, we don't attach them to God. So if they ever get brought up, we get agitated, we come up with simplistic answers to dismiss them, or whatever the case may be. Are you tracking with me? And then heaven forbid there be anything good about the devil, (laughs) right? There can't be anything good or redeemable in the devil at all, right? So what we've done is we've, we've created dualistic categories of good and evil that are separate categories altogether, that are in complete opposition to one another, and then we have God that kind of we made in our own image because we project all of what we think is good upon God, say that comes from God, and then we project all of the evil on this being that we've called the devil, right? And then we carry the dualistic categories even further into life after death. So we have heaven, which is full of everything that we want, right? I mean, what is heaven? Think about it. Like, Do you ever think about it? Like, what's heaven going to be like? 
But it's an emotional term, right? Because emotionally, like the fear of death is a very real thing. That's an emotion. And then we have this emotional sort of, oh, it's going to be whatever we think is, you know. I guess we finally will be allowed to feel good. (laughs) I guess when you get to heaven, if it feels good, do it. It's okay. Because there's no evil or temptation or anything up there, right? And then hell is where all the, the bad stuff goes, right? And we draw this from scripture, from Christian tradition, from Western culture in general, right? <clears throat> now here's the, so, 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 what I'm suggesting is that dualism does not exist in reality, that it is a map that does not track back to the territory, and that it's very unhealthy because it creates psychological division and really keeps us trapped and prevents us from actualizing the divine godlike abilities that we actually have and possess within us. Mm-hmm. And I'll get into that in a little bit more. But let's let's just do this for fun. So I don't know why I let religious people still drive me crazy. Because I know one of the things religion does is shut down your higher level thinking. And so why I would expect higher level thinking from people that are still stuck in that system is beyond me. But whatever. So one of the most frustrating things to talk about is when you start talking about hell. Now whether you believe the Bible is inspired of God or not, it doesn't matter. In the original text, it does not get clearly, it's very, very clear that there is no hell in the Bible whatsoever. None. So here's our problem. So let me give you the etymology for the English word hell, where it comes from, all right? So it's it means the netherworld, the abode of the dead, the infernal regions, and places of torment for the wicked after death. Everybody catch that. Places of torment for the wicked after death. Got it? comes from a Germanic word that means the underworld. Uh, it's related to a, a Dutch word, a Norse word, a German word, and a Gothic word. They're all basically hell or variations of that. And it literally means a concealed place, to cover or to conceal. Got it? So the word hell itself originally meant to cover, conceal, or a hidden place. But it developed in our culture to mean a place of torment for the wicked after death. Now here's the problem. There is no Greek or Hebrew word in the Bible anywhere that means a place of torment for the wicked after death. So anytime you read the word hell, it's a mistranslation. Because of the meaning that we give to it now. So, for example, 14 times, of all the times Jesus talked about hell, 14 times, he uses the Greek word for the valley of Haman, a physical, literal valley in Jerusalem. If you want to go to hell, next time somebody tells you go to hell, you can just ask them if they're willing to pay your fare to the Holy Land. It's, It's the truth. And... The Valley of Haman was a picture of national judgment for Israel. And so if that just got translated, the Valley of Haman, which would be the correct translation, then that would do away with a lot of confusion. 
And we would have a totally different interpretation of what Jesus is saying because it's very clear every time he uses that term that he's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that is going to happen in 70 A.D. Now, if you factor into it that all of the Gospels were written after 70 A.D., then you understand that they're giving their explanation as Jewish Christians for what happened and attributing prophecy to Jesus. That's just irrefutable Bible scholarship. Basic, right? The other word for hell is Hades or Sheol. The Hebrew word is Sheol. The Greek word is Hades. That simply means the grave. Death. It has no value judgment no duality, and it is certainly not a place of torment for the wicked, or you wouldn't in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man find Lazarus in a compartment in Hades, enjoying life. Okay? So Hades just means the grave. Sheol just means the grave. So if those got translated properly, still no hell, no place of torment for the wicked after death, just the grave. So if we translated, the majority of the time, the word that gets translated hell is a literal physical location in Jerusalem, the Valley of Haman. The second one just means the grave, which, see, this is our problem, because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, Jacob goes to hell, Abraham goes to hell, David goes to hell. Job goes to hell, but it gets translated grave. So why do they translate a grave there? But then when you come over to Psalms, when it says all the wicked that forget God will be turned into hell, it's the same damn word. Oh, let me show you my t-shirt. Aaron, Aaron got this for me. Back there. It says parental advisory explicit content. So, But do you see how they twist the scriptures to fit their what they want? Because Jacob did. They can't say Jacob went to hell. So they have to say Jacob went to the grave. But if they're wicked, they can go to hell. So we translate as hell. You see it? Then there's a fourth word that's translated, uh, that's Tartarus. It's translated one time in the scriptures in Second Peter. It's a mysterious word, but it does come from Greek mythology. And it is a place of torment after uh, in, in the netherworld. But the reference there is to the angels who left their first estate, which requires you to believe that angels copulated with human beings and gave birth to some hybrid species... And God didn't prevent it, but He got pissed off afterwards and sent them to Tartarus. So, if you're ready to believe that, let's make a deal. <laughs> i got some other stuff I could sell you. <laughs> That's it. So here's my point. There, there is no word in the Scripture that translates to our English word hell. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is our fascination with that? Why all the the paintings? And why, what is our fascination with the devil? And why do we create these things? 
And so I, I think it's helpful to understand, I think, if, if you ever looked at the work of Joseph Campbell, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. Uh, Joseph Campbell looked at stories that are told, myths, if you will, that are told around the world, things in art, and he was influenced by the work of Carl Jung. So he began to isolate these certain archetypes that come out in every story and begins to postulate, and I think definitely show, that these things are an absolute projection of our own psychological world. So what I would like to suggest... I told him back there, I said, what we're going to title today is Opening the Gates of Hell. <laughs> but I found out we can't post it anyway because it's not recording. But, but it's a psychological projection, uh, just like anything in art, right? That tells us some things about our interior world. And so what I'd like to suggest to you is that this idea of heaven and hell, God and the devil is more the result of, can tell us more about what's going on in our inner world, let me say it that way, can tell us more about what's happening inside of us than what happens to us after we die. Are you breathing? Okay, so, how do we, how do we get there? <laughs> so I think, I think Freud, is helpful here. Uh, I know he's he's kind of you know they just kind of teach on him as like part of history now in psychology classes. But I think I think he was onto some things. So Freud basically divided the psyche into three different components. The first component he called the id, and he says that develops at infancy. Id the id. And it has two primary instinctual drives. The, the goal of the it is to get what it wants, when it wants it, regardless, irregardless of any consequences. Totally, the goal of the it is just to feel good and feel good now and avoid pain, right? <clears throat> Obviously, that doesn't work in a society. Right? So, the child begins to develop an ego. And the ego's job is primarily to make sure the id gets what it wants in a socially acceptable way. <laughs> that's, that's its whole goal. That's its whole drive. But somewhere along the way, society tries to continue to form the ego, and the ego gets lost and develops this thing called a superego. And the superego is a part of us that pursues morality for the sake of morality that pursues the good, if you will, for the sake of the good. And then throughout life, the ego has to find a way to find balance between meeting the demands of the superego and the demands of the id. So here's the point. You have the angel and the demon on your shoulder, right? Categories of dualism. So you've got the superego that has a drive, if you will, towards perfection or for you to satisfy all the moral demands, whatever it is that you think makes a good person. And then, but then you still got this id that just wants what it wants when it wants it, 
So it's making its demands. And so then we go to Scripture and we read Paul, the Apostle, talking in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5 about the war between the spirit and the flesh. It says the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit, right? And then he gives us lists and he says, here's what the flesh does and it's all this stuff, rage, jealousy, carnality, well, that's kind of redundant, um, sexual, you know, unbridled sexual passion and expression, um, hatred, murder, all that stuff. And then the spirit, of course, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, all these good categories. And you got these things. Or the native, I'm sure you guys have heard the Native American proverb, you have two dogs inside of you fighting, and whichever one you feed the most is the one that's going to win, and you can starve out the other one. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, and then, and then it's believers who are told, you know, pursue the spirit, all the good stuff, and crucify the flesh. Get rid of the flesh. Just crucify it. Kill it. Get delivered from it. Right. Whatever, ignore it, suppress it. So what religion does is it actually creates the chasm even wider. So then there's this poor, like, authentic you, the poor you, the the experiencer. Let me just put it this way. The experiencer who has the demand of one dog that says you have to be good and perfect and the demand of another dog that says, no, come over to the dark side. (laughs) And you're stuck in the middle of this tug of war. Right? And what if all of that is BS. What if all of that is a faulty map of reality? In other words, what if dualism doesn't quite exist like that? But see, here's so here's what we do. Look at our imagery. First of all, let's just take hell. What is hell? Hell, where is hell? Just, just, I'm not asking you to rationalize this because I'm not asking you to reason with me. I'm <laughs> Where is hell? Thank you. It's down below. It's underneath, right? Thank you. It's not a trick question. What is the environment like? What's the temperature like? Fire, right? And what do you do down there? Suffer. And, and who inhabits that place? Demons, right? And they're jabbing you with pitchforks and stuff, right? And... and <laughs> And and what what is the character or the nature of demons? Mean, evil. Okay, what's evil? What's bad? Give me examples. What, what's bad? What, what? Okay, if I was demon possessed, what are some things I might do? Disarm. Murder. Okay, what else? Torture. Steal. Violent. Mean. Rape. What else? Okay, so you get it? So everything that we don't like about ourselves and some of those urges that we have, we assign to entities other than ourselves, energies other than ourselves that we call demons. And we assign them to a place where? In the underworld. What else is down there? Suffering. So we don't like to suffer. We don't like to deal with pain. I mean, is there, is anybody ever experienced trauma in your life? Any kind of trauma? Pain. Right? Is there a place that could even be imagined that's more traumatic than hell? To be, to suffer for all eternity? No. So, so in reality, we don't like to look at those parts of ourselves. 
Everything you guys said that I would do if I was demon-possessed, except for rape (laughs) and murder, I have those sides to me. I can be mean. I can be angry. I can feel very violent feelings. I know, I hope, I'm sorry I'm to disappoint all of y'all. All that stuff is in there. It's not other than. Those are parts of me. But particularly if I'm in a culture that says, no, i got to be like God and godly and walk in the light and all this stuff, well, then none of that stuff can exist. So what happens? I have to suppress it. I went through trauma growing up. I didn't know how to deal with that pain. I didn't know how to deal with that hurt. So guess where I put it? In the underworld. And anytime something triggers it and it begins to come up, guess what it feels like? A flame of fire or a pitchfork or torture. You get it? So the concealed place, the hidden place, is the psychological container for what Carl Jung called my shadow self. Or the part of myself that I choose to deny. The parts of myself that I choose to deny about myself. That reside in the unconscious that get activated every once in a while. (laughs) Alright, let's talk about your neighbor. Because I know this is hard to see in ourselves. Because see, this is a problem. We don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. So we put it in the concealed place. We put it in the hidden place. We put it down below. How many of you... Have ever had a relationship with someone who turned into a five-year-old at some point? Because they weren't getting their way. And no matter how much you reason with them, you will feel like you are reasoning with a five-year-old. Or a ten-year-old. Or a sixteen-year-old. Right? Why? Because they want what they want when they want it, right? And adults throw temper tantrums. We just learn to do it in a very ego-centered way that is a little bit more socially acceptable than falling on the floor and kicking and screaming and hollering and banging our head and saying, I want it now, I want it now, I want it now. Right? You ever just um, go along and get anxiety just seemingly out of nowhere, all of a sudden just this anxiety comes up and you're just like... And you're just tense and you're like, what, what is that? I don't know what's going on. These are all states that we experience, right? These are all states of mind, states of being, right? Now here's the thing. Anything in the unconscious does not have real contact with the outer world. Anything that we keep suppressed, that we keep down there, never has contact with what's really going on. Because it's so in hell, it's so in the hidden place, that it doesn't interact with logic. That it it can't see reality. The only thing that's real is what it thinks and feels and believes. It has had no experience from out here. So in other words, that five-year-old that's like the, 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 that's throwing a temper tantrum does not realize that you're almost 50, <laughs> in my case, and 
you've had a lot of life experiences. That frightened little child inside of me that panics in certain social situations forgets, like has had no experience of maybe the... (laughs) I'm joking about myself, but you won't get it. I'm telling a joke to myself. I used to really lack people skills, so I was going to say it has no experience of the last year of me actually dealing effectively with people. Because <laughs> I started to say it has no experience of, you know, uh, the nine-year-old in me that got bullied in school that gets in certain social situations and gets activated has absolutely no understanding or experience of life. And positive social interactions that I've had for the last... 40 some years. Like it totally missed all of that. So in a very sense, in a very real sense, those parts of us are locked away from life and dead. Because they're not growing or developing or experiencing life as it is. So when they manifest, they're manifesting out of the imaginary world that has been created in my own unconscious or the gates of hell have opened (laughs) within me and the energy of that thing has been summoned (laughs) into manifestation until I can get a hold of it again and push it back down and close those things shut (laughs) and forget about it. Are you tracking with me? But now here's the, here's the other really unfortunate part. So so let's that's that wolf, right? And so let's look at the, Jamie. Do you have that picture? Let's look at this. So what are our images of the devil? Like like look at this. Like there's nowhere in the Bible that says the devil looks like a goat. There's nowhere in the Bible that says the devil has horns or pitchforks or a tail. Our modern image of the devil comes from the god Pan. Now what was Pan? Pan was the nature god. And Pan represented all the parts of us that get stirred up by nature, our natural instincts. Our natural instincts. You notice that, I'm sorry guys, I I don't want you to think I have a problem, but I'm just trying to help us understand this, right? So please don't take offense to this. I'm I'm not advocating for this in society, I'm just pointing it out, alright? Notice that the cat in heat does not care which tomcat comes around. Yeah, exactly, right? The snake, no, I don't like using the snake because snakes are evil. They're part of that duel. The, the lion does not feel guilty for devouring the gazelle or the zebra or whatever. Or the, the owl does not feel guilty if it picked up your house cat that got out and takes it off for a nice meal. Like, it's all about survival. It's all about instinct, right? And so what Pan is there to represent is that we have these energies within our self. And so some of the ways in which pagans dealt with these energies were healthier and more integrated than we do in our Christian culture that's influenced by Neoplatonism and dualism. If you can take a look at pagan religions... Not as necessarily worshipping other gods that are competing with Yahweh for supremacy, 
but rather as a mental map for understanding the energies of life Mm -hmm. and working with them through ritual in order to integrate them, they no longer appear evil to you. Just waiting to see who's going to get up and walk out. <laughs> okay, but but so you get it, and so that's the part of us that we want to deny. That's the part of us that we want to suppress. That's the part of us that we want to ignore. That's the part of us that we want to go to hell and hide from everybody and from ourselves. You got it? All right. Thanks, Jimmy. And then. We have this other side, this Jacob side, if you want to go back to how I used Jacob and Esau last week, that is obsessed with being good. But the problem with Jacob is Jacob didn't feel good enough. He certainly didn't feel good enough to get his dad's blessing without pretending to be Esau. He certainly did not believe that God said he was going to bless him when he said he was going to bless him. And if he felt good enough, he never would have gone through 14 years of abuse or whatever from his uncle Laban. So Jacob is about the idealized self who pursues morals for the sake of morality that is conditioned by society and has a lust for perfection that is completely unachievable. So in that sense, Jacob also, that part of us also, you see this in Jacob and Esau so clearly, because Esau was a wild man. That's what he's called. He was a man of the four, he was Pan. He was out hunting and capturing and, you know, hairy, like an animal. I mean, that's the point. Like, we think that the original creators of these stories were trying to tell about the history of Israel. They were telling stories, the same reason other cultures told stories, to reveal these energies and how they work. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> doesn't make it any less true. In fact, it makes it more true and impactful if we can look at it through these lenses. You got it? So Jacob then is more mild. He's, he's more acceptable. He's, he's the good one. It actually says he's the good one. <laughs> so he stays home. He does all this stuff. He's trying to be a good little boy the whole time, right? So the reason he has to wrestle with himself or with really the Esau nature is so that he can come out of the unreality of dualism and its perfection. In other words, we try to put up this front and say, especially in religion, we try to put this front and say, this is who I am, I'm this loving, wonderful person, people that are, you know, light workers, I'll get to that in a minute. So we just, we're just full of light and love and life, and yet I just saw you act as mean as a snake. It's the same lie, it's the same delusion, it's the same illusion as religion, And its pursuit is just as vain. It's a chasing after the wind and after vanity. Sorry to disappoint you, if that's your thing. 
Because that part of you is also living in an imaginary world. So think about this. It's not engaging reality. Listen, the guys that, that, that blow themselves up, um, terrorists and whatever, more often than not, were financially suffering and were told that their families would be well provided for, that they were serving God, and that their death will guarantee them entrance into heaven. Now, if you're immersed in that philosophy, why wouldn't you take that deal? Yet what's good for you is horrible for somebody else. It's all a matter of perspective. Of course, our philosophies are right, so whatever we are acting on is, of course, right. That's them. That's that other group. It's not us. See it? So the sad part is, is that the vast majority or a lot of our energies are spent totally not engaging reality at all. We're either engaging a standard that we can never achieve, feeling driven to do that, and we're denying the aspects of ourselves that we don't like, that are unacceptable, that are in this other dualistic category, that are mean, that are ambitious, that are greedy, that are selfish, that are whatever. Right? So what's the solution? Let, let, let me give you this. For those of you that want to be light workers, I think it's so fascinating that Tolkien, in his stories, that the wizard, who's the hero in the story, is Gandalf the Grey. And the wizard who is the villain in the story is Saruman the White. And it's a perfect revelation that when we try to be all light, we deceive ourselves. And we don't see those more destructive forces. And because we don't see them, because we keep them locked up, they eventually overtake us. And so in our attempt to be Saruman the White, we end up serving whatever the eyeball was. <laughs> oh, wait, what, what was wizard then? Yeah, but who is he serving? Like, wouldn't he serving? Okay, well, anyway. Yeah, sorry, Justin. <laughs> He's like that, the resident expert when it comes to Lord of the Rings, let me tell you. You see it? So, but who's, who's the hero in the story? Gandalf the Grey, because you see, there has to be a blending and an integration. So here's the reality. If it's not duality, if it's not dualism what is it then it's polarity it's opposites in a sense that need to synthesize to bring forth a third thing so in the beginning and and this is in the genesis story in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep (laughs) and we our english translations are bad because what what what's what's there the word for deep there is a pagan god, Lotan, who is a monster who lives in the sea, a seven-headed monster that lives in the sea. That's in Genesis 1. So God's dealing with these forces of chaos that exist in the sea. And the sea is a perfect example of living in unreality because it just shifts. 
So God says, let there be light. And then what does he do? He separates the light from the darkness. He separates water from land. It's all about polarities. All about polarities until you get to the man and the woman who are also a polarity. But he says this, watch. The t- <laughs> like, you shall leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife and the two shall be one flesh was not God's sex education class for Adam and Eve. It's showing that the pathway forward is not which dog do you feed more, which one do you crucify and which one do you follow, but that in the synthesis and exchange of the two polarities, a third can emerge. And that's what brings forth life. That's what brings forth fruitfulness. So instead of having an angel and demon on my shoulder and trying to keep them, trying to push away the demon and follow the angel, what can happen is those energies can come together and blend in a way that brings forth something that did not exist before or a new creation that is gray, Twilight. Venus. The morning star. The light bearer. Appears at twilight. Jacob gets his blessing from wrestling at twilight. It's all trying to show us that the pathway really isn't, I want to just be in the light or light worker, or it's all this lovey-dovey stuff. The pathway is, I want to exist in harmony and in wholeness. Not denying, not rejecting, not suppressing, and not hating any aspect of who I am. So watch how Jesus teaches us, and then I'll try and give you something practical. <laughs> I mean, it, it takes time because this is such, I mean, you can't even get to the practical stuff until you get through the illusion of reality that we've been living in. Mm-hmm. Right? So Jesus says this in verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the behavior is not enough. The moral and the behavior is not enough. He's saying, you have to address the energy that is in all of us that is behind the behavior. So in other words, somebody doesn't just commit murder. They've given themselves over to an energy that's risen up from the depths. 
And so Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're condemning everybody else for doing the action because you're, and you're not even recognizing the energy that exists within you. Therefore, if you bring your gift to your altar and remember that your Esau, <laughs> your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. And first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and throw you into prison. And I assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. What if he's not talking about external relationships? Because he's not. If he was talking about external relationships, then the context of it would have been, you don't murder, good. You're relating outwardly with another self correctly. Mm -hmm. He's addressing the interior realities. You've heard it say, you shall not murder, but if you've got all this energy and stuff going on inside of you, that's where you need to look. Then he doesn't immediately shift it and say, "If you, therefore, if you give your gift at the altar, you remember you have something against somebody, go fix it out here. Mm-hmm. The brother he's talking about, I'm convinced, is your, your twin, your evil twin. Not, not you guys. <laughs> I have two evil twin sisters. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the other part of yourself, the other you, right? Go, be reconciled within yourself. Find real integration, real integrity, real wholeness, real authenticity. Let, and the word for reconcile there is interesting because it means to have a mutual exchange. So in some sense, it does have that sort of sexual idea of two polarities coming together and a third emerging. Go be reconciled to yourself and then offer your gift. Agree with your adversary while you are on the way. Who's your adversary? The adversary inside of you. Quit fighting. Quit hating. Quit denying. Quit condemning those parts of you to hell. And agree. The word agree there is really interesting because it says give yourself wholly over to them. Because see, it wasn't until Jacob gave himself wholly over to the angel that he was wrestling with and got wounded in his hip that he could get the blessing. Give yourself wholly to your adversary while you are on the way, lest, watch this, your adversary turn you over to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. We have some translation problems again. The word for officer there. All right, all right, so so let's do it this way. Here's what happens. If I keep suppressing those energies, if I keep denying those energies, if I keep hating on those energies, if I just keep, oh my God, I wish it'd just go away. And label it whatever you want. Your 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 inner dog, your flesh, your whatever. I just, I want it to, the darkness where I want it to go away. I hate it. I want to change it. Oh my God. And I keep pushing it away. 
then eventually what happens is that energy is going to deliver you up. When you do that, you're judging. So that energy is going to deliver you up to the judge. Because it ain't going to go away. It it doesn't like Jacob any more than Jacob likes Esau. It's not going to go away. That's why when, when the church tells people their sexual orientation is wrong, they can't change their sexual orientation. So they try. Because Jacob's there saying, your sexual orientation is evil, your sexual orientation is bad, your sexual orientation is wrong. And their devil is like, yeah, but it feels really good and I can't help but be attracted to this and I really want this and those life energies are rising up, right? And so what do you do? You put on a mask. And I know people have done this. They put on a mask for years. And what, but what happens? No matter what they try, no, they try to pray it away, they try to cast it out, they try to whatever. And I, and I know there are exceptions to this rule because you're dealing with people. So you can't take a hard fast rule and apply it to every case. But in many, many cases, it doesn't go away. 35, 40, 45, whatever, it's still there. Hey, remember me. Until finally something happens, right? But as long as you keep delivering that part to the ju- to the judge, you see it? No, we're going to the judge. You're wrong. You're bad. You're evil. We're going to the judge. No, you're wrong. No, God hates you. We're going to the judge. Now watch this. It says the judge will deliver you to the officer. I'm convinced that the, the translators had absolutely no idea because they didn't understand the psychological reality that Jesus was speaking to. So they had no idea how to translate it and they needed it to make sense for you. At least in Buddhism, they have they have koans, they have riddles, things that you have to look at that's a riddle that makes no sense, that as you work it through, you, you get some freedom and integration. A lot of what Jesus said is absolute riddles that didn't make any sense, and so the translators just fixed the riddle so it would make sense to your logical mind. Because the word there for officer never in the Greek, ever, means an officer of the court or a jailer, ever. It's the word huperites. And the Huperites was a person who was a criminal who was sentenced to be an under rower in their ships. So I don't know if you ever saw Ben-Hur, but when Ben-Hur is chained to the oar and they're having to row and you got all these people, he was a Huperites. He was an under rower. So where is he? Beneath the ship. But what's he also doing? Powering the ship. (laughs) So in other words, if you're at war with yourself, if you're an adversary to yourself, if you're living in this dualism and duality with yourself, and you don't come into a synthesis, and you don't come into a twilight, and you don't come into a reconciliation, and you don't somehow bring that part that's in the dark to engage in reality and in the real world... and you keep judging it, and you keep hating it, then eventually what's going to happen is you're going to go to the judge and that part is going to deliver you to an unconscious force that has you chained and bound, but is still driving your ship. You just can't see it. Maybe it shows up as obsessive-compulsive disorder because you were taught if you didn't confess all your sins, you were going to go to hell. So now you're in hypervigilance constantly, oh my God, oh my God, biting your nails, pulling your hair out, doing whatever. 
Because the under rower now has put you in prison. This is supposed to be healing. Just, just saying. Because the good news is, you don't have to, the, 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 that idea, that concept, that division of good and evil and light and darkness and, and God and angels and Satan and demons, it is an, it is, it is a map that can, that you can, I'll just say this, it's a map that no longer serves me. It's a map that I realize put me in absolute bondage. Because it forced me to deny, repress, suppress, and ignore parts of myself. And live in fear, and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how, you know, so like I'm engaging with this whole community online of like light workers and whatever else they call themselves. And I don't mean this, I'm not trying to be insulting to anybody. But it's so funny how if you, show anger or you stand up for yourself or you're sarcastic with somebody because they're just not getting it. People will chastise you for not having love. But see, a real commitment to authenticity means you have to accept the fact that you don't love everybody. And you don't act loving towards everybody. And just quit feeling guilty about it. All right. Because see, here's what can happen. If you get angry about something, you, you feel that energy, right? So this is where maybe it gets practical. You feel that energy rising up inside of you. That is a part of you. You don't have to suppress it. <clears throat> you don't have to deny it. And you don't have to totally give in to it either. Because if that's the case, then again, you're pursuing the dark. Get it? You're not in the, you're not in the synthesis or the twilight. You're not finding that, that middle ground where something new can emerge inside of you that feels whole and feels authentic and is spontaneous and flowing and, re- and responding to life. Responding to life as it is rather than how you think it should be or how you wanted it to be. And so you punish your present because you just never arrived where you wanted to be or you should be further along by now or I wish my marriage had worked out or I wish my, whatever. Right, And so you hold up this ideal and you keep torturing yourself because your life's not matching up to that ideal. This allows a new self to emerge that's able to understand on a higher level the complexities of life, able to flow with life as it is, not how you want it to be. So you get angry about something, so instead of condemning that part of yourself, you love that part of yourself. You reconcile with that part of yourself. You agree with that part of yourself. Yeah, I'm really pissed off right now. You let yourself feel that energy, right? Then the balance comes in where the energy is domesticated. The energy is tamed. It's not let loose like a wild animal. Not denied. Not shut up in a concealed place, not hated on, not sent to hell, but loved and domesticated. So you let, you let yourself feel it and integrate 
emotionally with the rest of you. And then take an action that is balanced with both the synthesis of feeling and reason. And guess what happens? When you do that, that energy is like gasoline. It burns up. It's gone. I'm not angry anymore. Exactly. I'm not angry anymore. I'm not dealing with that anymore. It's not shut away inside of me somewhere. It's, it's, it's gone. It's used up. So now I can move forward. No resentment. No bitterness. No ruminating on, oh, how am I going to get that person back? Uh, the next time I see him, I'm going to tell him, uh, 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 uh. oh, no, 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 no. And you can't do that. You know, just think about the consequences of that on your job. Boy, if you did that, you know, you'd be brought into the boss's office. Yeah, but I'd sure like to tell him. Uh, 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 uh. I know none of you all think like this. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't feel that way. Do you see it? So what people always ask me, how do I do this practically? What's the first step? The first step is if you don't, if you stop heading towards the judge. What, where are they? Agree with your adversary while you're on the way. On the way to what? On the way to court. So if you stop taking yourself to court, guess what? That's, that, that means you're at least stopping. So if you can stop the value judging, if you can stop the hating, if you can get out of this dualistic thing and say, oh my God, if I did this, I'd be such a terrible person, I'd be such a horrible person. There are so many people in bondage and in jail, they cannot be them or authentic self because they're so worried about what they're going to do to someone else. And all that someone else has to do is make them feel a little bit guilty. And they succumb. So now we're in the whole war of this battle of the sexes, manipulation, toxic family systems. Ugh, I gotta shut up. I don't want, I don't want you to feel hopeless, cause sometimes when this stuff gets exposed, you can be like, what the heck? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> this is why meditation, this is why spiritual practice is important. This is why meditation is important, cause meditation allows you to get more in tune with the position of the observer and the experiencer. And you realize the part of me that wants to do good is not the, is not the real me, it's just a function of energy that's going on inside of me. And the part of me that wants to kill or whatever, or, or chew out my boss, or whatever you deem to be unacceptable. I mean, it could be simple stuff. The part of me doesn't want to mistreat somebody because, oh, they might feel bad. So I'm going to mistreat myself so that they don't feel bad. So either way, you've got an unhappy human being. Like you didn't improve the planet one bit by compromising your own well-being for someone else. You just made them better and yourself worse. And really what you did was you became their emotional drug dealer. And they'll just keep coming back for more hits. It's true. Because you're saving their pain. Ugh. Alright, I gotta shut this down somewhere. So, <laughs> my therapist says, you start group therapy in your church and like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> No, she doesn't say it's not a good idea. 
But I know it, it can activate things and leave you wrestling with things and leave you struggling with things. I get that. So I'm trying to kind of land the plane in a safe way, right? <clears throat> Some of you might actually, speaking of therapists, and I'm not trying to recruit business because I won't take any of you on anyway because I'm not ethically allowed to. But some of you might need therapy to work through some of this stuff, and that's okay. Some of you might need a guide or something. Some of you might need a spiritual practice. But if you don't get anything out of today, please understand that God, God is the somehow originator of all this stuff. And we're just caught in this Illusion and delusion of reality. And the truth is that all of these energies are not morally good or evil in and of themselves. They're just energies. Good and evil is a human construct. Not a divine one. Because God said, even in the Bible, it's in the Bible, God saw everything that he made and it was very good. (laughs) And it wasn't until the man ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that his eyes were opened. Watch the shift. When God looks, everything is good. When Adam's eyes are opened, he's looking from his perspective, he projects evil mm-hmm. upon parts of himself that he can no longer accept. Mm-hmm. So real ascension is to come back to the place where we're viewing through God's eyes and seeing everything is good. So if you can see everything about yourself as outside of this frame of good and evil, it just is. And the real you is the experiencer. And then you can begin to just think about it. If you just start asking a question, if you just quit judging yourself, if you just quit hating on yourself, if you just quit being so driven to change yourself, your whole life will change. If that's all you ever do with this message, it's enough. But you can also begin to look at those things and say, how can I bring these two aspects of myself together? Just ask the question. Ask the question of yourself. How can I bring these two aspects of myself together into a synthesis, into a twilight, into a gray area so that I can go forward in something new? A new self can emerge from that place. Does that make sense? I went long. I apologize. Shall we pray? (laughs) Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for today. I I pray that what I said will be helpful and empowering. It will lead us to be compassionate with ourselves, reconciled with ourselves, and that that will cause more peace and love and joy to become real in our experience, both with ourselves and with other people. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.